Good evening. How is everyone doing today? You guys doing well? Hope so. Um, yeah, it's, uh, you know, as, as we go through some of those songs, it's, uh, they're definitely very fitting to the text that we're going to be covering this evening as we're taking a look at Numbers chapter 11. And uh, I did title this one. I don't always title all the messages, but um, uh, one of the things that I saw throughout this whole chapter is that um, there are definitely lessons in ungodly desires. And at the same time with that, it's not like God ever left his people. And uh, so therefore, um, our confidence is in the mercy and grace of God. As we look at these lessons, how it is that they, in many ways, apply to our lives. And we need to understand God's grace and God's mercy and how it is that he's not only uh, graceful and merciful toward us, but he's also patient, and, uh, and no matter what, he doesn't draw away from us in the sense to where he removes himself from us. When we are his, he brings us along. Sometimes he disciplines us, and sometimes um, he gives us the desires of our hearts. And not always are those um, things that he gives us, though, uh, in line with his heart. And that's what we're going to take a look at uh, this evening, um, one of the, the areas. So... We're in Numbers chapter 11, and uh, let's start out with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you, Lord, um, for uh, your word. We ask, Lord, that uh, you would open up our understanding, that your spirit would, would give us uh, this lesson, Father, and point um, to exactly the areas in our lives that we need to have your word applied, uh, whether it be for correction or or anything else that uh, you deem necessary, Father. I pray that we would humbly come before you and, uh, and receive from you that which you have to say uh, to the church. And uh, so, Lord, we commit this evening into your hands, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, what, we're, what we have this evening is, uh, basically, we have, uh, number one, uh, we have immediately, as the the children of Israel begin to travel from Mount Sinai uh, is uh, is complaining. We're going to see complaining not only from the Israelites themselves, but also from Moses and uh, how it is that the Lord attends to the needs of his people and Moses, um, but does something within there to teach the, the children of Israel and Moses a valuable lesson. So let's start out with the, these complaints that come before the Lord. Uh, starting in chapter 11, verse 1, And the people complained in the hearing of the Lord about their misfortunes. And when the Lord heard it, his anger was kindled. And the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some outlying parts of the camp. Then the people cried out to Moses, and Moses prayed to the Lord, and the fire died down. So the name of that place was called Tabram, because the fire of the Lord burned among them. So we have the complaints that come from the people of Israel before the Lord. Now, we need to keep in mind that the people had been delivered, that they had been brought through a parted Red Sea. They had been provided for by the Lord, this manna, bread from heaven, uh, water from the rock. They had been consecrated. They had been uh, given leaders um, to help them go through, organize them. I mean, all of these things the Lord had done, and now they're actually literally on their way to the land that God had promised them. All of these things, they'd seen God's miracles time and time again on their behalf up to this point. 
And immediately what we see here is that the people of Israel begin to complain. What could they be complaining about is the question. You know, they say here right from the beginning is that they felt like, um, you know, they, they were murmuring because of their misfortunes. And that's how it's described here, of their misfortunes. But what, what were their misfortunes? I mean, God had done all of these things for them. Where in there can you find any kind of misfortune? And so they complained. And then in verse 10, and we'll go through that, but it says, Moses heard the people weeping throughout their clans, everyone at the door of his tent. So you can imagine the, the Israelites moaning and crying and complaining and like literally being at the door of their tents, of their dwelling places, complaining. Like throughout the whole camp, this is what they were doing. Now, we're not given any other reasons for their complaining. I think sometimes um, the Lord gives us these kind of general complaints or murmuring or gossip or things like that so that we ourselves can, can think of those things that perhaps we're complaining about, gossiping about, you know, doing all those things, and, and the Spirit brings it to the surface, right? And He deals with us. I think in much the same way the Lord is doing it here and not giving us the specific reasons, only one that we see here as far as the man is concerned, but not really anything else that would come in the context of experiencing these misfortunes. But I really don't think we need a big ima- imagination to know that they could be complaining about j- just about anything. The land they were going to was promised to them by God, although I'm sure it was rough living out there. It's not like what, what we have been accustomed to ourselves in today's day and age, all the things that we have at our fingertips. And I mean, even the AC in here and being covered. And uh, I remember just being in Haiti and, and how it was that the people didn't care whether it rained, shine, it, you know, it really didn't matter. They were getting together. But they had it rough. But God had provided for them. And what we know about complaining is that wherever there is complaining or murmuring, it's because there is a dissatisfaction of the present circumstances that people find themselves in. And there's a desire for things to be different. They lacked a heart of gratitude for what God had provided and the promises that they had been given already up to that point. Wouldn't that be enough to propel them, to ha- help them endure those things which they were experiencing in that day? And, and it should. And it should. But it didn't. It says here that the people complained in the hearing of the Lord about their misfortunes. In Ultimately, that's the one thing that we need to realize is is that our complaining will always be within the hearing of the Lord, before the Lord. They describe them as misfortunes. Whether we complain about other people or even or even to ourselves. You know, it's like, well, if we keep it to ourselves, do you ever like have that self-talk? You know, you are the person that you're talking to and you go, you're driving to work or you're just sitting there thinking you have a little time and sometimes time without doing anything, sometimes it's our worst enemy. You know, that idle time because we start thinking about it and and, and sometimes we allow things to dwell in our minds and in our thought world to the point to where it starts affecting how we think 
um, truly about whether other people or certain situations, and we build a mountain out of a molehill. It's really, truly something that is not reality. And, and God doesn't desire that we worry about many things that we worry about or make things into something that they really aren't. They're really small, especially before an amazing, omnipotent, omniscient God. But this is all done in the presence of the Lord, and that's what we see here. Romans 14.12 says, So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. And in Matthew 12.36, it says, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. So this kind of um, discredits those that try and justify being able to speak their mind. You know, sometimes, um, you know, people just, they're more prone to say before they think, you know, speak before you think. But really, the, the Bible does not make any provision for that. Um, because to speak your mind is not a good characteristic to possess. It really isn't. There must be controlled, control over what we think and say. Both of those things. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 5 and 6 says, We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. Now, this is saying that there's absolutely nothing that should be able to stand against the Word of God. That's what it says. What destroys those lofty opinions or those those thoughts that go against the Word of God, it's the very Word of God. That is what has power. It's not us. Like we command that to be destroyed in the name of Christ. Well, it's because it's the power is in the name. It's because it's the very Word of God that nothing can stand against it. But we need to submit those thoughts. We need to submit those things that we perhaps are thinking about to the Lord and allow Him and his word to deal with those things. James 3, 9 and 10 says, With it, that is the tongue, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. And so we know, we know from just going over those few verses that what needs to come out of our mouth is really words of edification, of encouragement, of uplifting, especially our brothers and sisters in Christ. Not a tearing down. And so we need to be in control of not only our thoughts, because what we think is going to come out. At some point, it's going to come out. Whether it's kind of like in a mix of attitude and words, but it comes out in some way, shape, or form. So we always have to stand on guard. So the Bible is perfectly clear that we are to have control, again, over what we think and what we say, being aware, being aware of these things and being able to, to direct our words, direct our thoughts, and sometimes even stop. I know personally, um, you know, I've said things that, you know, once they go out, you're like, no, too late. They're out. It, it's there. And... And there's, there's been moments to where I've also caught myself. You know, you're in the middle, you're like thinking something, you're like, yeah, it, it, it'd probably be better if I didn't like follow through with that thought and said that. Maybe it's just not, it could be that it, it could be perceived as not being appropriate. Even if it's 
in jest. It's just not appropriate. It could be something that is better left unsaid. You know, it's like, I want to say this, but you know what? It's just, it's better kept here, you know, and submitted to the Lord. Go ahead, Lord, you could have it. It's yours, and we'll leave it as it is. It's interesting that they're, they're complaining angered the Lord. And what we have here, though, is that his anger was manifested or it was revealed in a very real way. The outlying areas were set ablaze, is what we have here. There was fire. There was a little literal fire that burned around the camp. And this did exactly what the Lord had designed for it to do. Can you imagine... I mean, you're being led by a pillar of fire by night and a cloud by day. The same thing that brought you comfort now is all around you. And it is a consuming fire. And it came up just like that. Well, it did what it would do to them. It, did, it would do to us. And that is, it struck fear in them. They were fearful. And when they do, they turned around and cried out to Moses. Moses, help us. There's fire everywhere. And the question that I was thinking about is, how many times have we seen fire, quote-unquote, around our camp? Our lives. There are times when God desires to get our attention to let us know that what we're doing, perhaps, is not the right thing. There's fire around our camp. And there are those people, just like the Israelites, who won't pray for themselves, but they'll ask someone else to pray for them. And that's what we see with the Israelites. They cried out to Moses. The best thing to do would, would be for them to pray themselves. How do you pray when, when you come to the realization that perhaps something that you've been doing was not right? You humbly repent, right? And you cry out to the Lord. He is merciful. He is long-suffering. He is full of grace. And He desires above all else obedience. And that comes many times in, in a, a, a spirit of humility before him, of brokenness, and just confessing. That's obedience when he brings it to light. But it's always an indicator of a lack of a relationship with the Lord when instead of you praying for yourself and presenting yourself before the Lord, you ask someone else to do it. Again, the better thing is to pray to the Lord personally and humbly. We know for us, as New Testament believers, as disciples of Jesus Christ, that we can enter boldly into the throne room of grace. We have access to the Father because of the Son. He's there at any time, every time. And He is faithful. He will meet with you. As you draw near to Him, the Word tells us that He will draw near to you. And that's a promise. But the fire burned. And it indeed accomplished what God had intended for it to accomplish. It got their attention. And Moses interceded on their behalf in the fire. It, the Bible tells us here, it stopped completely. Now, we continue verse 4. And we learn that this complaining, part of it was about the manna. Now the rabble that was among them had a strong craving, and the people of Israel also wept again and said, Oh, that we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing. 
the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. But now our strength is dried up, and there is nothing at all but this manna to look at. Now the manna was like coriander seed, and its appearance like that of bdellium. The people went about and gathered it and ground it in handmills, or beat it in mortars, and boiled it in pots and made cakes of it. And the taste of it was like the taste of cakes baked with oil. When the dew fell upon the camp in the night, the manna fell with it. Now, the rabble that is referenced here in verse 4 is a reference to a mix of people that came out of Egypt with, along with the Israelites who were not ethnical Israelites. Uh, they perhaps were slaves uh, of other nations, that were with them, and because they saw the power of the God of the Israelites, and they saw what was going on, and they were under bondage in Egypt, they would rather go with the Israelites and remain there in Egypt. And so they did. They were mixed into and within the Israelites. We know that this is true of the church today. And God said that there will be a separating that occurs one day. The wheat and the chaff, the goats and the sheep, it's referred to in, in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 13, verses 24 through 30, and 36 through 43. And then we see the, the goats and the sheep referred to in Matthew, chapter 25, verses 31 through 46. Now, with this rabble, with this mixture of people, there was this intense craving. It came from within them. It was of the flesh, and it was real. There was a strong desire on the, on the part of the Israelites as well. And, and they, were, they were also referred to here as far as having this strong desire. And again, might I remind you, this is a very real craving, a very real desire. It's not something that we can easily dismiss. For those things that we battle against have to do with the flesh, uh, the pride of life, and the schemes of the devil. Those things we are in constant battle with until we go home to be with the Lord, we're going to be battling, battling them. And they are real. They're very real. But again, this awareness of how it is that, that we are more than conquerors in Christ Jesus our Lord, how it is that we are victorious in Him, that sin no longer has that, that, that hold on us as it once did outside of Christ. It's not our taskmaster, um, our, our master is now the Lord Jesus, and sin doesn't have the same kind of power it once had. Once we are aware of these things and, and realize who we are in Christ, we can walk in the newness of life. We can truly pursue that holiness that God desires to, for us to walk in. We are to be a righteous people, a separated people unto the Lord, a consecrated people. Because, again, these cravings and desires, they're real. They take place within a person. And the Bible warns us of this. It's like, hey, listen, this is going to come about, but don't succumb to it. Don't surrender to those desires. Submit them to the Lord. We need to take heed. The child of God is victorious in Christ. James 1.14 says, But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed. By his own desire. By his own desire. When we allow these cravings and desires to ruminate in our minds, they tend to distort reality. I mean, 
Listen to what they're saying. Oh, that we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing. The cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. Really? I mean, this is a distortion of reality. This, this isn't what was going on in Egypt. It, it weakened their understanding of God's truth. And this could lead to a weakened submission to God and instead submit to our cravings giving in to sin. The very thing that they were on the path to doing, we are warned of today. The people were speaking of the food that they had eaten back in Egypt that was good. That it cost them nothing? Wait a minute. Were they not enslaved? Were they not treated harshly? Anything they had cost them their freedom, and they lived not for themselves, but for Pharaoh, for the Egyptians, not for themselves. The way they described the food, in contrast, that God had provided for them in the wilderness, they described it in this, this manner. They said it was nothing at all. Nothing at all. They didn't give it any value. They were discrediting what God had provided them with. The manna, as we read here, was prepared in so many different ways. You could be creative with it, and they were creative with the manna. But it is abundantly clear that even in this short period of time, they were tired of it. They were done with it. They wanted more. They needed to understand that the food that God provided was to simply sustain them through the time that they spent in the wilderness on their way to the promised land. That was the land of plenty. That was the land of milk and honey. Not the wilderness. That was just a a journey to possess the better part that God had promised them. You know, if we get to the point in our lives today to where we want everything now, we, we want just the land of milk and honey right now. I want it all. And I know, Lord, you'll provide it all. I'm complaining about the little that you have provided for me because I know that you just have this abundant life with all kinds of things for me, right? It's like, no, this is like the, the wilderness. This is like, this is nothing right here. The abundant life is to be content in the Lord. That's what the abundant life is. To be content to receive what he has provided for us and just be satisfied. Like, who is your satisfaction? Who is your contentment? It shouldn't be anyone else. It shouldn't be anything else but the Lord Jesus and only him. In essence, the Israelites were saying that the manna was boring and they needed more and cried out for more, more. Especially in today's church, I think this is perhaps the words that we need to hear more than ever before. It's not God's job to entertain us. And the lack of gratitude for what He is providing is a way for His people to despise Him altogether. 
Ian Bounds said this, quote, We do not need men who arouse sensational stirs by novel devices, nor those who attract by a pleasing entertainment. But we need men who can stir things, work revolutions by the preaching of God's word and by the power of the Holy Spirit, cause revolutions which change the whole current of events. By the very word of God and by his spirit is what Ian Bounds is saying. That's what the church needs. It just needs more of God's spirit. It needs more of the word. Just preached, just taught and lived out. Applied to one's lives. It is not boring. We don't need fog machines. We don't need a light show. We don't need lasers. In fact, all of that, quite frankly, could even be a distraction or a mixing up more of the rabble amongst God's people. And we be- begin to you know, get into this place to where you can't differentiate between one or the other. I mean, just another picture of Carl Lentz and uh, Justin Bieber came out of them, them tossing some back at a bar earlier this year. And you, you kind of wonder, it's like, you know, we're, we're in the world, but not, we're, we're not of the world. We're supposed to be set apart unto the Lord. We're supposed to be distinguished from the, from the world. Like, you know, there should be some kind of difference. And as we mix in and try and attract the world into the church, we're missing the whole point. We become diluted. And there could be even many false converts that believe that this is who God is and He's not. And they start to believe that this is truly my best life now. And it's not the case. God for the Israelites. He was faithful. He would provide for them the very thing that they needed. He knew exactly what they needed. They needed manna. They they needed bread from heaven. They needed to be sustained. They needed a strong leadership. They needed uh, a, a leader who was ordained by God, anointed by God, set apart unto the Lord for his purpose, his plans, given the law, given these instructions to live by, and go do it. You're on your way to the promised land. Go. By the way, the Lord was saying, that's enough for you. You have water coming out of a rock. You have food coming down from heaven. What more do you want? It's amazing how it was that God would faithfully provide for them manna from heaven every night. As the dew fell, so did the manna, is what we see here. The bread from heaven. But then we have Moses complaining to God as well, in a different way, but he's complaining to God. Verse 10 says, Moses heard the people weeping throughout their clans, everyone at the door of his tent, and the anger of the Lord blazed hotly, and Moses was displeased. Moses said to the Lord, Why have you dealt ill with your servant? And why have I not found favor in your sight that you lay the burden of all this people on me? Did I conceive all this people? Did I give them birth? That you should say to me, carry them in your bosom as a nurse carries a nursing child to the land that you swore to give their fathers. Where am I to get meat to give to all this people? For they weep before me and say, give us meat that we may eat. I am not able to carry all this people alone. The burden is too heavy for me. If you will treat me like this, kill me at once. If I find favor in your sight, 
that I may not see my wretchedness. So Moses complains to God. He's frustrated. He sees all the people crying at their doors. It's like, okay, that's a lot. I see all these people crying at their doors. They're just complaining. God is angered. Moses initially intercedes on their behalf. The fire stops. But Moses is frustrated. He's very, very, very frustrated. Seems as if their complaints really got to Moses, obviously, right? They lose sight. And so does Moses. They, they lose sight of God's faithfulness and God's ability to provide for them. And they cry out to God with a faithless complaint. And then here we have Moses doing the same thing. He's crying out to God with a faithless complaint. They cried out to Moses, give us meat to eat. The Lord had been giving them manna from heaven and they were crying out to Moses, give us meat to eat. You give us meat to eat. And it's at that point that Moses loses sight of God's faithfulness and God's ability to provide for them and cries out to God with his faithless complaint. And yes, Moses may have had pretty decent reason to complain. But no matter what, it still wasn't pleasing to the Lord. Not, not at all. Why? Because in this complaint, complaint, he failed to trust God. Instead of seeking God in this matter and inquiring what to do, he just complained. Remember earlier, he, he had those two guys that came to him and said, Hey, you know, why can't we participate in the Passover? And he said, You know what? Hold that question there. I'm going to go talk to God. I'll be right back. And he did. He failed to do that this time. It doesn't say anywhere here that, that he took some time after he heard the crying of the people and went and inquired of the Lord. He didn't do that. And we're always in trouble when we are bombarded with sometimes what is overwhelming and what is burdensome and what is heavy and we fail to inquire of the Lord. We fail to go to him. And Moses failed in that respect. He just complained because he was thinking of himself and not God. Again, E.M. Bounds said this of the preacher. He said, quote, The preacher must believe with the mighty faith, a faith that is never disturbed by fear, never darkened by a doubt, a faith that never sees the seen but fills its eye and heart with the unseen and eternal, a faith that sees nothing but God, seeks nothing but God, believes nothing but God, a faith that makes the unseen things the real things and counts the seen as low, distrustful, and perishing. I mean, Moses even accused God of afflicting him. He said, why have you dealt ill with your servant? Why have you afflicted me? And why have I not found favor in your sight that you lay the burden of all this people on me? And Moses went on to say, if you will treat me like this, kill me at once. Strike me dead. If I find favor in your sight, strike me dead. Please, right now, I am so done. I am over. This is just the end of the road. 
and I'm calling it. I'm throwing in the towel that I might not see my wretchedness. And I like how he throws that in at the end. That, you know, it seems noble that I, that I might not see my wretchedness because I don't want to lose it. <laughs> and that's what he's saying. I don't want to lose it. Well, I'm sorry, Moses, you already lost it. <laughs> yeah, the people were crying like a bunch of babies. And Moses is complaining to God because he's overwhelmed, saying that he wasn't the one to conceive them. He wasn't the one that should carry them and nurse them. But listen, God had assigned them. He had ordained Moses to lead them out of captivity through the wilderness into the promised land. He did give them that, that responsibility. He, he didn't give it to Joshua. He didn't give it to Aaron. He didn't give it to Caleb. He didn't give it to any of the others. He gave that responsibility to Moses. And the only way that Moses was going to be able to stand through successful and victoriously was in the Lord. He needed to remain there. He needed to trust in the Lord. That's the only way. It was too much otherwise. God had never said that he was going to let Moses lead these people alone. He never said that. God was present with Moses, and he would even meet with Moses regularly. I mean, I, I never read of any time that Moses turned to inquire of the Lord, and God said, I'm quite busy right now. You should handle that on your own. Like, oh, okay, no. And he doesn't do that with us. Every time we go to the Lord, the, we turn around. He's right there. Yes, son. Yes, daughter, I'm here for you. You inquire of me. You ask for wisdom without doubting. And guess what? You're going to get it. I give to you without holding back anything. Seek me and you will find me, is what the Lord says. He is faithful. But it's in a moment of desperation that Moses loses it. And he cries out to God, to kill him. If this was going to go on the same way it's been going on, just kill me. I'm done. Lack of faith and a lack of contentment of God will distort reality, as I said earlier, and weaken our understanding of God's truth. And this could lead to a weakened submission to God and instead submit to our cravings. What was he giving into? Emotions. That's what he was giving into. He got all filled with emotion. He was overwhelmed. And that's what led to him saying these things to the Lord. And that is giving in to sin. So how does God answer Moses? Well, he doesn't relieve him of seeing his wretchedness. Moses actually needs to see himself for who he is. As you and I do also. We need to see that wretchedness. We need to have that revealed from time to time. We need to be reminded of that reality in our lives. Well, he doesn't kill him. You see, God's in control of the timing of Moses' death. And by the way, Moses, it's not your time. But God does speak to Moses with full, perfect knowledge of exactly what they all needed. Not just Moses, but all of the Israelites. Because we see that in the, in the following verses. Let's continue verse 16. Which says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Gather for me seventy men of the elders of Israel, whom you know to be the elders of the people, and officers over them, and bring them to the tent of meeting. 
and let them take their stand there with you. And I will come down and talk with you there, and I will take some of the spirit that is on you and put it on them. And they shall bear the burden of the people with you, so that you may not bear it yourself alone. Let's stop there for a second, because then it goes on to greater detail. So, he had the priesthood, he had the Levites, Aaron and his sons, he has the, the, the Levitical priesthood as well. He had, uh, if you recall, all the leaders of the tribes, of the standards, so on and so forth. So there was a lot of uh, organization already uh, in the congregation itself. But then on top of that, we have these 70 elders that were given to Moses and the people for the benefit of them all. These men were specifically to come alongside Moses. These were elders who were full of wisdom. But the one thing that they lacked was the anointing of the Spirit that had been given to Moses. They lacked that. They had perhaps a lot of practical knowledge. They had a knowledge of the law. They had to know the law. But this anointing was the one thing that they were not in possession of. And they needed it to be spiritually capable of leading the people in the manner that God desired, in the place that God desired, and he called them to lead. It's interesting that these men had already been selected by God. But now, basically, they were being recognized by a man. They were being called out. And as God called them, Moses recognized them. Notice that God commanded that they stand with Moses at the tent of meeting, but he was going to still speak with Moses and take some of the spirit that was upon Moses and place it on them that they too may share the bearing of the burden of the people. The things that would be brought to Moses would now be shared with the 70 elders and he would help and and they would help him out in leading the people. This is the only way that really anyone can help under the load of spiritual leadership. By being anointed by the Spirit of God. God was going to help Moses through the support of godly men. And we know that this is the way that the Lord works today. The apostles had such men. You think about Nehemiah. Nehemiah had such men. King David has such men. We can go through, and, and if you think about it for a while, you, could, you, you realize that there were a lot of leaders within the Bible that had godly men that came around, that God sent their way to help them bear the burden, the, the load of being leaders of God. Well, we continue on, verse 18. And this is... Uh, a few verses where we can say, the Lord said, you asked for it. (laughs) Verse 18, And say to the people, Consecrate yourselves for tomorrow, and you shall eat meat, for you have wept in the hearing of the Lord, saying, Who will give us meat to eat? For it was better for us in Egypt. Therefore the Lord will give you meat, and you shall eat. You shall not eat just one day, or two days, or five days, or ten days, or twenty days, but a whole month, until it comes out of out at your nostrils and becomes loathsome to you because you have rejected the Lord who is among you and have wept before him saying, why did we come out of Egypt? Stop there for for just a moment here. 
Wow. <laughs> well, <laughs> God called for them to, to ready themselves for what was to come. This innumerable amount of quail such as they had never seen up to this point. Several important things that we need to see here. Number one, God is going to demonstrate once more that he's able to do what he's able to do by providing an amazing amount of meat. You wanted quail? You want quail? You're going to have it. Not for a couple days, not for five days, not for 10, not even for 20, but for a whole month, you're going to have it. It, and it's going to be like, you're going to have so much, it's going to, going to come out. And this is how the Bible describes it. It's going to be coming out of your nostrils. That's gross, right? In other words, a lot. You're going to have a lot. Imagine, oh, really? Get ready for all of this. And you know, some people just pass by everything that the Lord is saying, and they're like, give it to me. Give it to me, I can take it. God also recognizes that he has been despised. It's like you can fool everyone. You can even fool yourself, but you cannot fool God. He's perfect in his knowledge. And he even says it. You've despised me. And I'm sickened by it. And by the way, you will be sickened with so much quail. All of that which I give you, you're going to be sickened by it. Now, the question is, how have the Israelites despised God? Well, he listed it out even in this consecration. Prepare yourselves. This is what's going to happen. And this is why, by the way. And he tells them. But even at that time, they didn't repent. Well, how they rejected him with their constant crying and complaining of what he had provided them with. And even even to the point to where they said they regretted leaving Egypt. Wow, so I delivered you. Out of the hand, from the hand of Pharaoh. With all of these miracles demonstrated to you. And you even regret leaving Egypt? He says, well, that's why. This is why. After God had delivered them with an abundance of treasure, in fact, he repaid them for everything that they were shorted of by Pharaoh and the Egyptians. He repaid them. He performed the miracle of splitting again the Red Sea, provided manna from heaven, water from the rock, intended to their every need. They still complained and cried over what they were now perceiving as being misfortunes. Well, sometimes the Lord will reprimand his children by giving them what, exactly what they asked for. It's like, wow, there's an abundance of this, an abundance of that. It's like... If that's keeping you from the Lord, if that's uh, something that goes above and beyond and, and, and it draws you away from the Lord, then guess what? That abundance is not a blessing. It's a lesson. That's even discipline. Not understanding that this is the very thing that causes them to further their distance from the Lord. They get farther away. And the question is, what's, what's your heart's desire? Is it more of something else than God? God may give you that, but it's not what brings you true satisfaction and contentment. 
Psalm 73, verses 25 and 26 says, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. That's, that's where we need to come to, to the place to where we are content in whatever place we are with the Lord. We are fully satisfied in Him, and He is our portion forever. We need to keep that in mind, always always before us, that our prize is not, not here. We may have come to know Him here, but one day we will abide in His presence forever for eternity. Let's continue verse 21. It says, But Moses said, The people among whom I am number 600,000 on foot, and you have said, I will give them meat that they may eat a whole month. Shall flocks and herds be slaughtered for them and be enough for them? Or shall all the fish of the sea be gathered together for them and be enough for them? And the Lord said to Moses, Is the Lord's hand shortened? Now you shall see whether my word will come true for you or not. Shortened to the point is the way the Lord responded. It kind of reminds me of something as far as, as, far as Moses' attitude toward the Lord. And that is a story that took place in Matthew chapter 14 of Jesus' disciples and 5,000 people who were gathered together listening to Jesus teach. And it was getting late in the day. The people had not eaten. And the disciples came to Jesus and wanted to send them away into the towns that they may go and purchase something to eat. And Jesus answered them saying, they need not go away. You give them something to eat. Imagine that. 5,000. Well, what do we have? Um, Not much. Five loaves of bread, two fish. But but what is that with so many? You know, we've, we've taken an account of everything we have physically before us. And it certainly isn't enough. That's what Moses was saying. <laughs> You're going to provide meat for them? There's 600,000 men. It didn't include the women, the children. Yeah, Lord, that's a bit much. What are we going to do? Like dump the ocean out and, and uh, all these, these flocks, these herds that we have? Are we going to slaughter all of them? And we still wouldn't have enough. Well, Moses was missing the whole point. Moses couldn't figure out how it was that this was going to happen. Moses was still figuring that he was going to be the one providing for them. When it was God all along. It wasn't Moses. In fact, God never asked Moses to provide for them. He never asked for him to provide for them. At this point, God was not only going to do it, but he was also going to show that his word was true. Remember that simple response that God gave Moses? Yeah, is the Lord's hands shortened? Now you shall see whether my word will come true for you or not. Has God ever met your needs in some very unexpected way? I know he has with me and my family. God's faithful and there's nothing he cannot do. He owns a cattle on a thousand hills. I mean, he, he can provide for you in so many different ways. It's absolutely amazing. Is the Lord's hand shortened? And the answer is no, of course not. But first, let's talk about the elders here. Verse 24. 
So Moses went out and told the people the words of the Lord, and he gathered 70 men of the elders of the people and placed them around the tent. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and spoke to him and took some of the spirit that was on him and put it on the 70 elders. And as soon as the spirit rested on them, they prophesied, but they did not continue doing it. Now two men remained in the camp, one named Eldad and the other named Medad, and the spirit rested on them. They were among those registered, but they had not gone out to the tent. And so they prophesied in the camp. And a young man ran and told Moses, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the assistant of Moses from his youth, said, My Lord Moses, stop them. But Moses said to him, Are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put his spirit on them. And Moses and the elders of Israel returned to the camp. So 68 gathered together, but 70 were, were the ones that were... Um, actually chosen to come alongside Moses. They were out in the camp, and the Spirit fell upon the 68. But guess what? The two were out there. (laughs) The Spirit fell on them also. It's interesting how this happened. But what we see here is that, you remember the people cried out. They complained. This is what they wanted. Moses cried out. This is what he wanted. But what did God first do? Well, he provided them for them, not what they thought they needed, but what they actually did need. More leadership, more oversight. And then God would provide for them what they thought they needed, but really didn't need. More food, different food, a variety of food. Moses brought these 70, well, 68 men before the Lord, you could say, around the tent of meeting, the spirit of the Lord came upon them after the Lord had spoken with Moses and they prophesied. And really, it's critical that anyone who's in leadership or serving in some way, shape, or form, you could say, within the body of believers, that they also need to be anointed with the Spirit, that the Spirit would come upon them to empower them for the work of the ministry. If not, then they'll end up being actually a hindrance and not a blessing because they'll not have the same vision, they won't have the same attitude, And they won't have the same heart toward people and the work of the ministry. The way they'll see it is more, it's, it's a duty. It's something that I'm checking off. It's something that's just necessary within the church. And not that I have a great desire for it, nor to do the will of the Lord, but just something that I'm just going to take a little time out of my life to do. It'll be a burden. They won't be willing to sacrifice and serve joyfully totally relying on God's strength and trusting in Him. They won't understand what it is to truly sacrifice unto the Lord joyfully and willingly. They won't understand that. What it is to to have that feeling of, of running into church and enjoying anything that you do here. Anything for the Lord, because it's for the Lord. No, you need the Spirit to come upon you. You need to be Uh, totally anointed with his spirit, to overflowing. Now there were those couple men who were in the camp, Eldad and Medad, and they were prophesying. Can you imagine the spirit coming upon a couple guys? You were supposed to be in the meeting. Instead, you stayed behind. And well, that didn't exclude you, by the way, from the spirit coming upon you. And all of a sudden, the Spirit comes upon them and they start prophesying. 
And Joshua, like a good assistant, was concerned. He's concerned. Ah, oh, Joshua, the son of Nun. He goes to Moses. He did the right thing. He went straight to Moses and told him, Hey, there's these two guys in the camp and they're prophesying. Make them stop. Now for Joshua, he was thinking, would this somehow undermine Moses' authority? What are they trying to do? Are they bringing division? What are they doing? Why are they doing this? Did he do something wrong, Joshua? The answer is no. He wasn't doing anything wrong. He was bringing this report to Moses the way it should have been done. It was brought to Moses, not to anyone else. It wasn't brought to Aaron. It wasn't brought to any of the other Levitical priesthood. It was brought directly to Moses. That's where it went. No, he was a good assistant. Not one that withholds, but one that comes to a leader and tells him what's going on in the camp. And there's this trust that builds up, and this allows a leader to exercise his discernment, just as Moses did in this case. Moses wasn't threatened by the dad and me dad. Is that right? El dad and me dad. El dad, oh, no. El dad. I always have these words that I build up in my mind so I can, so I can remember. So El dad and me dad. No, he wasn't threatened, though. Moses was not threatened. He brought word to Moses. Moses exercised his discernment. And he responded by telling Joshua to leave them alone. That he wished that all would have the same filling of the Spirit and prophesy. Oh, that would be beautiful. There is no fear of takeover. And there never should be a fear of takeover within a ministry by someone who is genuinely filled with the Spirit. Genuinely filled with the Spirit. This person will only serve to strengthen the camp and not divide it. Then we have the quail and the plague of craving to close out. Verse 31, Then a wind from the Lord sprang up, and it brought quail from the sea, and let them fall beside the camp about a day's journey on, the, on this side and a day's journey on the other side around the camp in about two cubits above the ground. And the people rose all that day and all night and all the next day and gathered the quail. Those who gathered least gathered ten omers, and they spread them out for themselves all around the camp. While the meat was yet between their teeth, before it was consumed, the anger of the Lord was kindled against the people, and the Lord struck down the people with a very great plague. Therefore the name of that place was called Kibroth Hatava, because there they buried the people who had the craving. From Kibroth Hatava, the people journeyed to Hazroth, and they remained at Hazroth. All right. So, a cubit is about 18 inches. A lot of them, two cubits, three feet. God sent them quail, but it was all the way to them. It was a day's journey away. So can you imagine seeing, they saw a quail. Oh, they saw a quail. They saw a quail, but it was like, it's out there. You still have to go and get it. The Lord brought the best thing to the middle of the camp. That was the very thing that they needed. What did they need? They needed those 70 elders. The very thing that they thought they need, 
was outside the camp. It was outside. They had to go get it. So they still even had to exercise their will to go get it. And they did. They not only traveled a far distance to get these quail that were three feet high, thick, right? But they gathered them for two days, one night, two days, one day, one night, into the day, and they brought them back to their camp. There were so many quail. And while they were full and still had quail between their teeth, the anger of the Lord struck them down, and many died. It didn't say all of them died. So we can understand that what's implied here is that even though they were far off, even though all the people would stand at the entrance of their tents and they cried out and they complained and they murmured that it wasn't all of them that went out when the quail actually came. But quite a few did go out. Psalm 27, 26 through 31 says, He caused the east wind to blow in the heavens, and by his power he let out the south wind. He rained meat on them like dust, winged birds like the sand of the seas. He let them fall in the midst of their camp, all around their dwellings, and they ate and were filled, for he gave them what they craved. But before they had satisfied their craving, while the food was still in their mouths, the anger of God rose against them, and he killed the strongest of them and laid low the young men of Israel." Psalm 106, 13 through 15 says, But they soon forgot his works. They did not wait for his counsel, but they had a wanton craving in the wilderness and put God to the test in the desert. He gave them what they asked, but sent a wasting disease among them. Um, When we allow these ungodly cravings to rule our lives, God, again, may send us exactly what we've desired, what we keep asking for, But he'll also let us experience something that perhaps is even worse than anything else. And that's a leanness of our souls. A dissatisfaction with the very thing that we thought we would be satisfied with brings such a strong discontentment. And then we realize that there's separation between us and the Lord. That that very thing that we desired and we were given is the very thing that separates us from the Lord. That intimacy, it distracts us. It brings us in a different direction. We exchange that for an intimacy with the Lord. God's judgment was exactly what they needed in this case. Sometimes, like I said, we, we, we miss the whole point. We're asking for more of this and more of that. And the Lord gives it to us. And when he gives it to us, it's not because it's a blessing. It's because it should be a lesson. We just need to pay attention. They needed this lesson in order to be taught to not allow themselves to be led by their fleshly desires and cravings. As followers of Jesus Christ, we're not to be led by our physical appetites, our emotions, but we are to bring every thought captive before the Lord and to be content with Him. Otherwise, we too, in essence, may end up in Kibroth Hatava, which means graves of craving. It's a place where there's death, where there's graves that people are buried in, that have died. 
There's a lot of people that because of those cravings and giving in to those desires are, are dead spiritually. We can be judged and found wanting. We can be found full in personal desires, but lean in soul. And unfortunately, we can even be found to be dead spiritually before the Lord. Well, we're still His. We're alive in Christ. But we're just, we're dead. We have everything and nothing. The Apostle Paul wrote this. And I want to close with this. Philippians four eleven through 13. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we, uh, we desire to have that kind of character. No matter if we're leading or we've been called to that or, or Lord, we're, we're part of the church in, in any way, shape, or form, Lord, that we belong to you knowing full well that you are in control and you desire for us to simply trust you. Lord, I pray that you would help us to be satisfied with you to be content in those things that you've provided. And Lord, to know that you will never leave us, you will never forsake us, that you truly love us with an everlasting love. And Lord, that this this life is not the prize. This time here on earth is temporary. It'll come and go before we know it. We will be that final portion, that final stretch, that final moment of our lives. And our price truly is you. So let us hold fast to, to that truth. May we be encouraged and may we not succumb to the desires of the flesh, complaining and murmuring. May we not test you by constantly asking for more but simply fall in line with your will and be satisfied in you, be joyful in this life that you have entrusted to us to honor and glorify you. And so, Lord, we thank you. And we commit ourselves into your hands once more. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.